0: But we're going to continue this morning on our sermon series on love. Uh, we got one more week after this. JC's preaching next week. We're excited about that as well. So uh, the man of many talents is <laughs> going to share the word with us next week. So we'll be praying for him as he does that. We are going to finish the series next week, I think, on love. So that'll be awesome. I, I wanted to ask a question when we get started this morning. And, and of course, the obvious question is, uh, how was your Valentine's Day? Wonderful, someone says. <laughs> How many had an awesome, val- just an awesome, one for the, all right, yeah, how m- <laughs> praise God. How many had like a, eh, it's all right, raise your hand, yeah, okay, okay, I'm with you there. How how many of you, well, maybe I'm here, <laughs> how many of you had a, not a great one, not a, not a great one, yeah, all right, good. <laughs> we can all be honest in church, right? Hey, praise God. You know, one thing I thought about with Valentine's Day is um I was driving around, and I thought, you know, it really is an interesting cultural holiday because, I was just seeing people carrying flowers and smiling. Like, if you're out and about looking around, like, I was just waving at people. Everyone seemed happier for the day. I'm sure that was a perception. But it did seem that way. It's kind of a fun thing. I thought, you know, really, as Christians, like, Valentine's Day should be every day for us. Like, every day should be a day where we're like, smiling, you know, giving people flowers, buying chocolate, you know. I don't know. It's just a theory. Because it reminds me of the gospel, I, uh, I did not get a Valentine's card this year. I don't know if anybody else got a Valentine's Day card. Mike D. woo! Well, I didn't get one. and uh, But uh, my daughter was kind enough to let me uh, kind of enjoy her Valentine's card. And we're going to talk about these a little later today. But this is a great little card. It's a little cheesy, so you have to let that go. It says, Happy Valentine's Day. Not to be too cheesy, but I wanted to remind you. And then when you open it up. It's a whole pizza. (laughs) It says, I love you. And I won't say no more about it except that the funny note in this card says, I couldn't find one card that didn't say love in it. (laughs) And so this is what I got you. It's making me have feelings. I think, man, this is actually a great little card. It's like super cool. Anyway scratches a lot of itches. But that, what an awesome opportunity to uh, kind of celebrate a holiday. I'm sure this was not a cheap card that was given, just to, to, to just kind of be dragged into the story of love. And that's kind of what we uh, thought in the series, what I thought about in the series was, well, we should do that, talk about that as uh, believers. And, and to talk about the word in the Greek is eros, love. That's erotic love, love between people. There's also philos, love. That's brotherly love, right? And that's in the Bible as well. I don't think eros is in the Bible, hmm. but then there's agape, right? And that's God's love, and that's the love that we know because we know Him. This like eternal, enduring love, uh, this perfect love that God demonstrates through His Son Jesus Christ. And so I'm kind of trying to meld these two things together. I want to remind you where we've been. The first uh, week we talked about the way you look at me. And and It's this idea that I don't see myself rightly, and, and I, if I put thoughts in your head about what you think about me, I don't see myself through your eyes rightly, but we can look at ourselves through the eyes of Christ, of God himself, and that should inform our understanding of ourselves even in spite of ourselves, right? That should inform our own perceptions of us, the way God looks at us. And so that's the first thing. And then last week we talked about the idea of the only one I see and I'm fixated, and we sing that song about one another, but the truth is that anything that we elevate above, God himself, is sinful behavior. And that's just the fact, right? And so no matter what it is, no matter how good it is, if you actually elevate it above Christ, as a matter of fact, I was reading an article this week and it said that good God-honoring things, including things like worship, can become idolatrous when we enjoy the worshiping more than we enjoy God himself. Like, the the fact, like, I was saying about a lot this morning when we were singing, you know, the idea that I could enjoy the singing of the songs more than I enjoy the person the songs are about. See, we're always worshiping God. We're always worshiping an object. We're always loving him. And so even something like that, we can actually out-elevate into an improper position This goes for anything in life. Jesus was speaking of the scriptures, and he says, you think that you know me because you know the Bible, but the Bible talks about me, and you don't know me, right? That's his big accusation in in scripture um, against the Pharisees. Those who were very religious and very biblically oriented. So that's where we're at, okay? Another way I was thinking about this, because I was really struggling, I had this little fancy-dancy notebook I carry around in my pocket, you know? If I open the right side of it, I was early in the series. I was like, what is the series really? What is, what's happening in the series? And I had this kind of idea about directionality. Right? Directionality. You're not going to see this from there. Just pretend you can see it. Okay? But, and, and the idea was this that if you listen to the way those lyrics work in the song, which is this is all pulled from the song, but then biblically, right? What it's saying is it's the, the, way, the arrow coming toward us, the way we look at ourselves, the way we view ourselves, then the, looking out, the way that we look out. And now today is going to be the way we look up. And the title is very, very extraordinary, right? And so the way we look up, and then next week, is the way that we get down, right? And so there's this kind of movement of this. Uh, if you think about it, and I said it before, any love song is a worship song, if you're thinking about it through the perspective of our relationship with God himself. And in, in fact, um, it fulfills the song in ways that our human love can't, which is why if we expect our human love to fully fulfill us, it won't. Because there's always the love of God that we desire, whether we are or are not in a relationship, Okay, And so we have to have some confidence in that and some confidence in what God is doing in those things um, all the time. And so, it's time. We're going to hear a little bit. Is for the way you look at me. Oh, for the only one I see. Here it is. The it is very, very extraordinary. Woo! Almost got the E in there. I almost snuck it in. There it is. V. And then next week. What is it going to be next week? All right. So uh, we're going to start. We always, we're going to start with prayer and then we're going to get into the word this morning and hear about this very, very extraordinary. Love. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for a chance to be together with your people and worshiping you in, in your presence. Uh, your, uh, your house is a house of prayer, and we're drawn near to you in our conversations with you. We thank you for the week we've had that got us to this moment. We thank you for the morning we've had that got us here. And many times that's a struggle just to do that much, Father, but here we are to worship you and to sit at your feet and learn from you. I pray, Lord, that this morning you would be our teacher. Your word says that you will teach your people in our hearts that no one need instruct us, that your Holy Spirit will instruct us that we can know you more. Your word says, as I've been uh, proclaiming in prayer, Father, that if we ask for wisdom, we get it, that you are pleased to give us wisdom. That you're pleased to give us more of yourself as we desire you above the things of this life. And so, Father, this morning we come with that kind of a heart that we want to know you more. We want more of you in our lives. Uh, We know that we have uh, sinned and screwed up things, and we need to repent of those sins and believe the gospel. Help us do that this morning. Would you be our teacher? Would you open our minds uh, to your truth? Would you open our hearts to believe it? Um, Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel proclamation? May we know it again. We love you so much. We thank you for the way that you break through in, in, in tiny and mighty ways in our life, and we glorify you together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, like... How many of us? How do we? How do we um, see Jesus? Like, how do you see Jesus? Um, And I was wondering, like, do you see Jesus as ordinary or extraordinary? And and I know that's a churchy answer or churchy question. So you're going to say, well, um, extraordinary, right? Because no one's going to say ordinary for Jesus. But I wouldn't be so fast to think that, right? I think it's a reasonable thing to ask the question about how we see Jesus. Or what do we say about Jesus? Some of Jesus' own contemporaries actually uh, asked this very question. So I'm going to start in the Scripture. Then I'm gonna, we're going to have a little interactive time today. And then we're going to uh, go back to the Scripture. And then we're going to have some re- interactive response today. That's the plan. And so I want to start with like, some ways that Jesus' own contemporaries, it's recorded in the Scripture, the way that they saw him. And many times they did not see him as extraordinary at all. Or if they saw extraordinary things around Jesus, they began to doubt the extraordinary because it's Jesus. A couple of places that we can find this is um, in John six forty through 42, and by the way, we're going to be working in two Gospels today, the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to kind of go back and forth between those two Gospels, and we have one verse this in 2 Corinthians today, and so we're going to start with John 6, and that'll be up there so you can read it, but I'm going to read a little more than what's on the screen, 40 through 42, if you want to read along. Um, I'm totally confused right now. Oh yeah, yeah, grumble, there it is. Okay, I was like, I'm in a totally wrong place here. For Here's Jesus speaking. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and that I will raise him up at the last day. This is Jesus teaching to the Pharisees. And it says this. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And here's their doubt then. So they they hear this proclamation from Jesus about who he is, and they say this. Is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how can he now say, I have come down from heaven? And then Jesus answers them. So right away, when he's doing these miraculous works amongst them, they go, this is not extraordinary anything. This is Jesus. He's the son of Joseph and Mary. We know them. And now he says, I came from heaven? When did he come from heaven? Um, Again, we're going to see this in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's going to be in Matthew 13. Verses fifty four and fifty six. Coming to his hometown then Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't he the mother isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So Jesus, and this is where Jesus says, a prophet is not a prophet in his hometown, right? So Jesus um, comes in, and look at what the word says. He goes into their synagogue, and he starts to do, teach with great wisdom, and he starts to do miraculous things. And they go, wait a minute, we know this guy? Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't he the carpenter's boy? right? Something to keep in mind with Jesus' ministry is what we have captured in Scripture, other than in Luke's gospel, is about three years of active ministry from about the age of 30 to 33, I think is what most biblical scholars think. And, and, and we have a whole lot of his life we don't hear anything about. We see those little markers in Luke about him being prepared for the work that God has set him to do. Um, but by and large, it comes out of nowhere. And people are like, who is this Jesus? What does this mean? And look at what it says. They were offended with him after that. It wasn't like, well, hey, he's doing okay for a local guy, right? It's like, who does he think he is? As a matter of fact, I think you could write that in there, and that's exactly what the, the, the Pharisees and those people who are listening are thinking. Who does Jesus think he is? You see, because a lot of times in our life, we can have people around us, and, and we, can, um, we can get to a point where they'll tolerate some decent, but then eventually you just get a little too big for your britches. You ever heard that saying? You just get a little too little too big head on you. you just get, and then, and, then some, and then people who knew your whole life are looking and they say, man, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? I said the default church answer is, well, he's extraordinary, right? Well, we know that, but they didn't know that. Who does Jesus think he is? At the beginning of Jesus' own ministry, um, some soon-to-be disciples doubted him. I love, see, what, there's so much good stuff in Scripture, but I, I love, we're gonna go backwards in John to John 1, uh, John 1, 40, uh, 43 through 46. So I'll turn back a few pages if you're still in John. It records all these instances where you look at our lives and we say, Man, how can we get this right or wrong? But you look at the way people act with Jesus. It was very authentic. There was no fake it till you make it, pretend. You know, like you, people were like, What? Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? And in John 1 uh, 40, 43 through 46, this is what the word says The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, Follow me. So here's a follower. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one who Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, he says a very specific thing about Jesus. He says, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law, right? He's from Nazareth. He's Joseph's son, and so the response to that was, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked, like, what? Not, not, not Nazareth. And Philip answers, come and see. Oh, I love that little interaction there, right? So you have Nathanael, who's, who's been invited to come and meet Jesus. And when he hears about where he's from, he says, ordinary, boring, regular Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Listen to the word. Nothing good can come from there. Not possible. And, and Andrew says, hey, come and see. Come and see. Just come and look. Look at what God is doing. The one that Moses wrote about in the law. This is no small thing to say. It's a huge thing to say. But Nathaniel's like, I don't know. I don't know. Unless you think it's all uh, at the beginning, we're going to go backwards now in the Gospel of John Back, back, back to John 18, through 38. This is Jesus at the very end of his earthly ministry. Um, I won't see the end of his life, because it's not the end of his life, but he's nearing this moment that God has called him to about who Jesus thinks he is. And he's called before the ruler named Pilate, and Pilate is engaging Jesus in his conversation. He's been asked to execute Jesus, and he's kind of given him the, um, what do you call it, like... Uh, the, not an inquisition. What is it, though? It's like, yeah, maybe it's like interrogation. He's going to interrogate the prisoner to see if he should die or not. These are high stakes, right? You think about places in your life where you want to be careful what you say. If you're before the person who can take your life, you want to be careful about what you say. And so Jesus is there with him, and we'll start in verse 33. Pilate then went back inside of the palace, and he summoned Jesus to himself, and he asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? (laughs) And Pilate says, am I a Jew? Because Pilate's not a Jew, y'all. So he's like, how would I know if you're king of the Jews? I'm not a a Jew. It was your people and your chief priests who hand you over to me. What is it you've done? Right? So like, it's, it's your people saying that you've done something wrong. And here's Jesus' reply. Who does he think he is? Look at verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. And Pilate says this. So you are a king, Jesus answered. You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And Pilate asks this question. This is the abbreviated part of that verse. What is truth? I mean, he's been interrogated for his life. And he says, are you a king? You know, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's from another place. Now, look at what the word says. Now it's from another place. Because I've been handed over to you. Because they've not recognized it. Now it's from another place. And he says, oh, you are a king. I'm here to proclaim the truth. I want you to hear it again. In fact, this is the reason I was born And for this, I came into this world to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate's rhetorical question is, what is truth? Like, who can know, really? Who, and you can hear almost in that, right? Who do you think you are? A king, not of this world? Not very concerned about me and my power over you? Who do you think you are, Jesus? And then, You know, just like the Valentine's card here to get really personal, because, you know, why not? Because the Bible is so full of these great stories of God's love for us. Jesus has been hanging out with his disciples, and he's been telling them little bits and pieces about what's going to happen and what's to come, right? And he starts and he asks them a question, and this is, again, going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to read just around that a little bit. Um, Matthew... 13, or 16, 13 through 15. I'm almost there. And I love how casual, this thing is so casual, and it gets super serious in a hurry here. Um, Oh, I'm on 13. I'm like doing the, I'm like, okay, here I am again. 16, cool. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Now listen to the question he asks. Who's the son of man? Well, we got some answers for you. We've got some church answers for you. Some say this, some, some say that. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. And then Jesus makes it super personal here. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? You see how he goes, but have this conversation with people about, well, we know, who do you think the son of man is? And, and then he says, but, but what about you? Who do you think I am? Isn't that what he asks? Who do you say that I am? He's been dropping these hints, dropping these little things. The disciples have seen some work, seen the miracles, seen the people who are aggravated with him, seen the people who doubt him. And in the middle of it, he's, we've got some ideas. Yeah, but what about you? People have some theories, Jesus, about who you are. Yeah, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And I can't get over that holy um, moment that he draws Peter into, that he draws, not just Peter, by the way, because we're going to get to Peter's response in a minute, but that he draws the disciples into. Because, you know, if you're in the room, we, we know the story from Peter, what Peter says, but listen, if you're in the room, you're trying to think of an answer, <laughs> right? You're trying to think of, oh, this is, who do, you, who do we say you are? Lots of ideas are rolling around in their head, I can imagine. Well, we've seen a lot of things. We've, we've seen a lot of you. I wonder, uh, what about you? Uh, who do you say Jesus is? Wait, wait, let's ask another question. This is going to be the interactive part. Maybe you'll interact. Maybe you won't. We'll see how it goes. But what have you heard about Jesus in your life? What have people told you about Jesus? Like, here's the way. I, wh- who do others say Jesus is? Go ahead. Somebody's going to go first. It's all right. A savior? Okay. Healer. Healer? Thank you. Huh? A prophet? By the way, there's a good and a bad list here. You, you know, I know we're in church, but wh- who? Huh? Redeemer, a good man, God. Who said God? Thank you, Claude. A deceiver. Who do others say Jesus is? In your real life, in your real existence, when you're out, who do people say Jesus is? Because some say Savior, some say Redeemer, some say God. But you know what's funny, actually, about the God thing? That's a conversation I have to come back to over and over again, even with people who say they know the gospel. I have to be reminded myself of this as well, right? It's a presumption to think, well, it's obviously God, obviously Savior. But a, a uh, what, like it says, a drunkard? A glutton? A, a fraud? Myth, a myth. Yeah, I have a, I have a dear friend of mine that still, still admirably believes that Jesus as a person never existed. The person of Jesus never existed, which is incredible to me because it's like the most non-existent person ever written about, you know, and, and, and these books are written so early, we'll talk about that in a moment, but these books are written so early that, that they would have written within a generation of his living. It would be a pretty hard thing to just to make them up out of whole cloth and sell it to people within a generation of people. We think, well, we're more skeptical now. We know more now. now nah, they thought that too. They thought that too. Jesus, who do you think you are? Like, why do you think the Pharisees are asking the question? Maybe let's pull it in a little tighter. Uh, who do your friends say that Jesus is? Now most most of my friends say Jesus is Savior. Most, not, like I said, i got a friend that thinks Jesus doesn't exist at all. How about your family? Who, who does your family say Jesus is? Your parents or your kids or your siblings, your grandparents? Who do they say Jesus is? See, I find a, a lot of times in our lives, we spend our lives with people in our family, and, and um, but there's always that kind of, that w- whether someone believes Jesus is the Messiah or not, there's just kind of like people around watching and going, I don't know that I believe, or I don't know, I do believe, and I don't think they believe, in the same family. Who do you say Jesus, who do they, who does your family say Jesus is? How about um, you? See, because that's what we get compressed down to this moment. You know, one of our favorite things to do when we're, when we're uncomfortable is, well, you know what they say, you know they, I wish I could meet them someday, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Oh, people are upset about such and such. What? What about you? I've had people sit and talk about the gospel. I say, well, what about people in the rainforest who've never even met a white person who never heard the gospel come because it's, you know, from the Middle East? How, how about that? I'm like, how about you who are right in my office and I've just explained the gospel? See, it's just like this bait and switch thing. It's like, well, well they... Th-. No, 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 no. Man, Jesus, like I said, in this beautiful card, right? He writes it to us and he goes this is who I am, who do you think I am? Who do you think that I am? We have to remind ourselves all the time of who we think Jesus is. I just want to say this to you because I said it, uh, that it's not just people that, oh, yeah, those atheists don't believe in God. No, there are plenty of folks in the church who forget who Jesus is. I have been guilty of forgetting who Jesus is in my life. I I say the words, I I have even the new birth and the Spirit, and then I'm living my life and I forget who Jesus is. I begin to elevate problems above him. I begin to think he's too small to deal with these things. I begin to think he's forgotten where I am in my life. That's not true. Who is Jesus? Who do you say he is? Well, I told you that Peter is going to give the answer, and we're going to see it now. Still in Matthew 16, 16, Peter says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's Peter's response. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says this, blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. God showed you this, of who I am. I want to say that this is no small confession for Peter. And we've talked about this before, but he says, you are the Christ. It's the fulfillment of what Andrew said. We saw the one, we met the one that Moses wrote the law about. That's no small thing to say. (laughs) And now Peter, after spending time with Jesus says, Simon, he says, "You are the Christ." It's a great moment, a great confessional reality for Peter. He's come to know Jesus and who Jesus is. Well, then all of a sudden everything gets contextualized. What does it mean then, to love? What does it mean to be loved? What does it mean to have extraordinary love? Well, Jesus had some things he taught about this. And this is going to be back in the Gospel of John. You can flip back there if you would like to. This is our last flip back to John, I think. John 15, 12, and 13. My commandment is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. He says, you want to know what love is? Love is giving your life for your friends. Love is giving yourself for those around you. And he says, this is the greatest love. My command is this, love one another as I have loved you, Jesus. Teaching his disciples, how do you you love one another? You love the way Jesus loves us. How do you develop that um, love? By following after Jesus. The greatest love is to lay down your life for your friends. Now, you can read that in a human and say, oh, yes, that's great. That's exactly what we should do. We should lay down our lives. But Jesus here is forecasting the great exchange, the great encounter, the great reality. This isn't just flippant words for Jesus that he's going to say, oh, go love each other the way I've loved you and then continue to do life always the way he'd done life with the disciples. Instead, he's about to give his own life on a cross. Remember, this is between Andrew's thing and Pilate, right? Where Pilate's like, who do you think you are? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm going to lay down my life for, tho- for my friends, for those I love. Well, we have this actually written out, and this is where we're going to spend some time, in 2 Corinthians. And I just want you to hear the word today, because we can take this so lightly. Um, we can... Uh, Forget the profound nature of who God is. And so 2 Corinthians 5, 1 verse, 21. This is, comes in the middle of Paul exhorting the church, and he's encouraging. This is the second letter to Corinthians. We talked recently about the first letter. And he's exhorting the church on being um, reconcilers of the gospel or to recon, call people to, recon, to be reconciled to Christ, right? Ambassadors of the gospel. So he's calling the church to go out and to preach good news to the nations, But if you read in the text, he starts out saying, go out and preach good news, and then he himself pleads with them to be reconciled to God themselves. So he's telling the church, you be reconciled to God so that you can be reconciler. And then we come into verse 21. This is the point that Paul gets to because he says right before that, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, be reunited to God. 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Just so want to hear it again. We're going to talk about it. That God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's writing to the church, right? He's trying to encourage them to believe the good news. What is the good news? See, part of the problem with not remembering who Jesus is is that it it cheapens the gospel and it makes it less worthy to aspire to for ourselves. It it brings him off the high holy shelf that he alone is on. This is the problem with so much of church world is that we want to elevate ourselves and then pull Jesus down and make it just a little more accessible by our human endeavor, but that's not how it works. He's completely different. He's no ordinary man. The word here, Paul writes to the church, and he says this, Jesus... Had no sin. He had no sin. He didn't have a little sin. He didn't have kind of a bad thought once in a while. He had no sin in his life. Let me tell you something else about Jesus, right? He was perfectly obedient. Perfectly obedient. That in itself enough for me to stand in awe of Jesus. (laughs) Perfectly obedient? Think of it like this. I don't know if any of you guys have been students. I mean, you've been students in your life at some point, but I don't know if you enjoyed it or not, right? But all of us have taken tests, I want you to imagine that your whole life, you've been taking tests, and it's been straight A's. Not just straight A's, A pluses. Uh, do you remember uh, taking those tests? And they have the extra bonus points on the back, and, and you know, you're hoping like, oh God, I hope I get like a partial credit on this extra credit point just to get me closer to a B. There's some people who've been doing those and getting all those answers right. That's Jesus' life experience. Never done anything wrong. Never missed a mark. That's what the word actually says. You know, you, you get that cheat back and it's red. It's got red all over you. Oh, I missed so much. I missed a half point here and three points there. No, Jesus had never missed a mark his whole life. The word says that Jesus had no sin. The word is hamartia. It's mark missing. He's never missed the mark. The thing about sin that always comes up and the missing the mark is the archery idea, right? The archery. Imagine if you're a target shooter. If you're, if you're a gun owner, you're shooting at a target, right? You're dead center every time. Bam, 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 right? You get your bow and arrow every time. You know, the Robin Hood thing, and like one arrow and the other. And you're, like, you're perfect your whole life. You've never missed a mark, ever. That's the confession that Paul makes of Jesus. He had no sin, nothing We have to, I think, to rightly get the gospel, we have to rightly elevate Christ for who he is before we even begin to talk about what he did. Perfect, holy, blameless, without fault, God's only son. Who do you think you are, Jesus? The Father sent me here to you. I've told you every word he told me to say. Who do you think you are? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, blessed are you. Because God has revealed this truth to you. I am on the side of truth. And so we have then Jesus, the perfect, perfect person, the perfect life, never in error, and now standing before his judgment in this world. He knew no sin. Look at the second part, though, 21. God made him sin for us. Like, that's a head scratcher. I I want to point out something. It doesn't say God made him a sinner for us, right? We can conflate that and think, oh, yeah, now I, I you know, he, he's now, no, he never sinned. The word says that God made Jesus sin for us. He, he made him sin for our sake, that he took his perfect son, the one who had never missed the mark, had never done it, and he actually made him. The word is uh, genestete. Gu- 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 it's like to be born, to be made into sin. What we see on the cross is, is not a man dying, it's sin. Sin being put to death by the righteousness of God. And only God could do it. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Paul's great exhortation about being reconciled to God, being reunited to God, being drawn back into relationship with God, that that's the exchange. He became sin for us. We say these words, "Oh, yeah, Jesus died for my sin and your sin. He became sin. The one who had never missed a mark became all the mark missing. It was manifest, fleshed out, on the cross, Christ became sin. Why? Why would God make Jesus? Listen, I, 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 you know, we're pre- approaching Easter, and uh, I've been hung up on this uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, what Jesus says that from the cross. It's recorded that way in Scripture. Um, and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why would God make the one who was, had no sin? Be sin for us. It's Paul's confession here to the church. Here's the answer. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. (laughs) That in Christ, in him becoming sin, we become the righteousness of God. I ask if you ever take those tests and you get to miss the mark. You, it's like that. It's like you've been working your butt off on your test and you're like, oh, I hope I don't. And you get it back and you're like, oh, I messed up. And then, it, and then after the tests are handed out, then a teacher walks over and goes, oh, I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong one. Here, perfect score. What? So that you can become the righteousness of God. So that I can become the righteousness of God. So that we can pass this test that we could never pass on our own. This great gift given in Christ Jesus, that he became sin, that we who know sin could know Christ, that we could in him be righteous. And don't miss that. In him, in Christ, we become the righteousness of God. The church becomes the righteousness of God. I don't know if they still do this anymore or not, but I'm sure they maybe don't, but I'm going to tell an old story because I'm old. Back when I was a kid. We used to have Valentine's Day. It was Valentine's Day. My, my niece always had Valentines, which is adorable. But it's Valentine's Day, and uh, it was a it was a all week. You get excited about Valentine's Day is coming. And back, I was a 70s kid, so back in my day, you got those really cheap. Uh, I did, you know, we got those really cheap paper valentines. They weren't nothing like this card here. I'm just saying, you know, and uh, and then, but we would make a little box and put it on the corner of our desk, and we cut a little hole in the top of it, and then you know how it was. Like your mom would tell you, like you gotta take one for everybody, and you know how that was because you're you're sinful. Evil kids, you're like not that person. I'm not going to give them one. You remember those people? I'm not going to probably name them in my life. I mean, from whenever I was like in third grade, like no way, I'm not giving them a Valentine. And and then, but then there's those people that you really, really hope you get a Valentine from. You're like, oh, and you know, like half the class is hoping for like a couple people. And then like it's really ig- isn't that ignorant of little kids to be that way. What is wrong with us? and there's all this drama, and you try to make your box, you got to decorate your box, you know, and if you were not artistic like I wasn't, you couldn't make it very pretty. You're trying to make it more attractive to put, and maybe they'll accidentally put it in mine instead of the one next to me, because mine looks better than theirs, and all this stuff, and then the teacher says, okay, we're going to take five minutes. I don't know how I feel like forever when I was a kid, but it's probably five minutes, and we're going to give out our valentines, and everyone gets out of their seats, and you're going around, and you're in your box and you're trying to be sneaky about the one you really want to give but you don't want to see you give it and then you know try to and you do all this and you and you know gosh I mean hopefully if, if we're graceful we ever give one to everybody hopefully you're not that ignorant to hold that one out on that kid that you don't like you know and you get back to your box okay look at your valentines or take them home and look at them later I don't know how they did it I can't remember if they did it in class or not Be a dump them out and you're just looking for that one no, 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 no. Thanks, no, no, no. You know, or you look around, listen to me, and you see how many people got. Oh yeah, I thought they would get a lot. That mm, kid didn't get very many. I got less than I thought I should have got. I got that one. I actually think one time it was really funny, but I think one time I got one, and I went, and I was like, I can't believe. And then I think the girl said that was a mistake. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I, I don't think I put. I wasn't supposed to put it in your box. Another girl said, I. My mom said I had to give one to everybody. You know. Why am I telling that story? What do we long for? Like, what is in a third grader's heart that we want to make sure that we get a valentine? That somebody loves us. See, this this great exchange is Christ coming in saying, you. I love you. I love you that much. I don't forget anybody. And we get our hearts made full. We get to be the righteousness of God because he loves us. This is the greatest valentine gift of all time. This is why we gotta be Valentine's people. Because it's the greatest love story ever told. That God loves you. It's a great opportunity to have this conversation with one another. I think God's forgotten me. God hasn't forgotten you. I don't think God loves me. No, God does love you. He comes and he gives us the greatest gift of all time. This is the great exchange. We give up sin and we get a savior. You get all the bad marks wiped out and you get the perfect paper. We give up death and we get life. Listen, we give up hell and we gain heaven. We're bound for hell before this. Now we're bound for heaven. And let me tell you something. No one can change the trajectory because he's done it. Heaven bound. Here's one. We can give up. We give up hate and we get love. The Bible teaches, I'm gonna close with this, not only that God loves, but that God is love. Um, If you want a little homework, uh, you don't have to have homework, but I would encourage you to maybe read. If you want to re- read about love, read First John. You could read it in like 15, 20 minutes just to read the, the God's love story. But I want to share with you from First from John. By the way, I said First John, not John. There's two different. John's the gospel. It'll take you longer than, you know, 40 minutes to read the, uh, or 20 minutes to read the gospel of John. But to read First John, 20, 30 minutes. You should be able to read that. 4, 8 through 10. Whoever does not love, does not know God. Here's a great truth, because God is love. This is how God lo- showed his love for among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. In verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. An exhortation to us to love well. He gave his son for our sins as an act of love. We're going to um, celebrate a time of communion today. And communion is an invitation to Jesus' table. And uh, as we prepare to do that, I want to ask a question. Have you made the great exchange? I mean, across the board, have you given up on finding your own righteousness doing your own thing, and have you exchanged your sin for God's salvation? There's this um, idea of redemption that in order to use something, you have to take it and turn it in, right? You have to go and you give it. And have you done that? And then I would ask this question, if you've done that, do you need to do it again? Is there a sin in your life you need to repent of? And you're like, I just need to bring this sin to Jesus and receive him again, to remember again, to know again. The the word says that... um, If we're to receive scripture, we should do it in a worthy manner, um, that we should recognize Christ in the elements. And so we have the opportunity to do that, to remember Christ and make the exchange. If you've never done it, that's all it means. And I don't know where you are, but if if that's you right now, and you think, yeah, today you can make the exchange. Your sin for his perfection, our brokenness for his healing, our hopelessness for his redemption. Your sin for God's righteousness. I'm going to ask Drew to bring forward the, uh, and if we want to actually, if someone wants to get the kids out of a uh, blast. Huh? Yeah, they're about to break out anyway. So we say this all the, often at Family Bible Church. I don't say all the time, but we often say this at Family Bible Church. This is not our table. It's the Lord's table. And uh, we, don't, we would encourage you to recognize that this is a remembrance of Jesus Christ, of his sacrifice on our behalf, not of ourselves. And so, you're welcome at this table. Not because we, we make that right, but because it's open to anyone, anyone who wants to know him in this way. And so, I would invite you, as, as you are encouraged, led to respond uh, in communion, to do so. Um, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth in the previous letter, he writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Because every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. And then it were admonished: Therefore whoever eats the cup, eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So a person ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. Because anyone who eats the bread and drinks the cup without recognizing the body and Lord eats and drinks judgment upon themselves. So how do you, how we do that? How do we recognize? offering that god has made we, that's what we talked about the whole time right our sin his salvation our error his perfection and so i'm going to pray and then you can come as you feel led to come and receive communion let's pray together father god we thank you so much for this morning and the the, the profound nature of god's of of jesus's uh reality um that we so often look past we, we too often father uh check off the Jesus box and say, yeah, I I know that, and then move on to, quote-unquote, more important things. But, Father, there can be nothing as significant or substantial as your Son on a cross becoming sin for us. I pray this morning that as we've been encouraged by your word that we would see you, that we would recognize you, and, Father, that we would recognize our need for you. Father, none of us, none of us would come to this table in a sense of righteousness or deservedness, but in humility and recognition of, of our sin paid for with great price. May you be glorified, Lord, as we continue to respond to your gospel. And may our response be worthy of your offering. May you be glorified. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.